Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 25 of the 1951 Down Place podcast for September 2013. My name is Scott, and the stars of the show, Derek and Casey, will join me in a few minutes to talk about the 1959 Hammer film, The Stranglers of Bombay. This is a film that received some mention in the Facebook voting for our Listener Feedback Month. Reading through this talk convinced us to add it to the Downplace calendar and check it out. The film stars Guy Rolfe as Captain Harry Lewis and George Pastel as the High Priest of Kali and was directed by Terence Fisher. The Stranglers of Bombay is loosely based on a cult of assassins in the early 19th century India known as the Thugga, and some believe this film was an inspiration for Steven Spielberg on Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. So did the downplacers like this film, or did they get all choked up while watching? We'll have to find out right after a word from Hammermints. Ladies and gentlemen, are you suffering from dry mouth, scratchy throat, or just having trouble breathing? Then you need Hammermints brand throat lozenges. Hammermints brand throat lozenges contain crushing dream that provides a delightful response for your T-zone. That's T for taste and T for throat the proving ground for any lozenge. Hammermint's brand throat lozenges were first developed in the 1830s by scientists working for the British East India Company to combat restrictive throat problems experienced by the men working for the British Empire in Africa, Australia, and especially India. Hammermint's have proven time and time again that they are the bomb from Bombay to help with dry mouth, scratchy throat, or just having trouble breathing. So head down to your local chemist today and ask for Hammermints. And if you're having trouble breathing, make sure you bring someone who can ask for them by name. That's Hammermints, a proud sponsor of the 1951 Downplace Podcast. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes, because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. 
Fozzie Bear, Buzz Lightyear, Link Hogthrob, Doug, Janice, Merida, Pepe, Bruce, Ralph the Dog, Wally, Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. This is Kali, the goddess of destruction. In this temple of horror, she reigns supreme. She gave our ancestors this sacred cloth and said, Kill! This is true. This is real. This actually happened in mystery-shrouded India. As a perverted religious sect gripped a nation by the throat, its worship is dedicated to the wanton destruction of human life. They were called thuggies. There's Nick's. What about them? Oh, they're broken, all of them broken. There's a bunch of so old, they're disintegrating. How can you tell they're broken? There was one that wasn't so old, remember? It still had some flesh on it. Prepare the sacred cloth. Kill, kill! One million murders as satanic killers prowl the fearsome night for innocent victims of their far-flung murder cult. Harry! No woman can resist. No man can survive their strangling silks. You have sinned against the goddess Kali. Those that sin against Kali must suffer the pain of never looking upon her face again. The incredible truth about India's thuggies, the butchers of Bombay, deadlier than their native cobras. See Mongoose fight cobra for a man's life. See the Stranglers of Bombay. Even though Hammer Films has finally found its groove with the gothic horror movies with Frankenstein and Dracula, they're still playing in other genres. And one of the movies that came out of this experimentation was 1960s The Stranglers of Bombay, directed by Terrence Fisher. Can I correct you there? What's that? It actually came out in the UK in 1959. You know, and I've seen that. And thank you for pointing that out because it does have a weird kind of release thing going on. It's completed in 59, released in 59 in the UK, released over here in the 60s or 1960, depending on which resource you look at. It's going to give you a different year. So thank you for pointing that out, Scott. And then we've got Casey being incredibly quiet uh, here as well. How's everybody doing? Oh, yeah. A little slow. <laughs> uh, stayed up too late going to the drive-in. So Your life is hard. Oh, my life is hard. Yeah. I stayed up watch- too late watching football. Your life Your is life- hard as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know that makes me it means I got to turn in my uh, nerd card here, but you know. Tell tell us that at least you're doing some fantasy football, something. I'm actually not doing fantasy football. Casey, come on, you're letting us down. Well, Scott would be disappointed too, though, because I was rooting against Purdue last night. So. No, no, no! I just work <laughs> there. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I just work there. <laughs> well, I spend a lot of time in bed because I'm going to have my gallbladder removed. So my life is hard. Oh. <laughs> This is actually the last podcast that I'm recording live before I uh, finally call it quits with my gallbladder and, and have that. So this podcast uh, will be yeah. the last one featuring Derek's gallbladder. That's correct. The, the last appearance. Uh, because of that, though, we are kind of recording a little bit earlier than normal. 
So uh, bear with us, listeners. If we seem to drift off, it's because one of us did not refill our coffee cup. Or Mountain Dew. <laughs> oh, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know if we can say the film was exciting enough to keep us all awake. And we'll get into that. Before we started recording, we started sharing our thoughts with each other about the movie. So we kind of knew where this recording would go. And I think we're going to have some mixed opinions here, which will make for an interesting discussion, I hope. As Scott said at the beginning of this, it was released in the UK in 1959. It was released here in the States in 1960. comes out from Hammer. It's one of the last movies, if not the last movie, to have the exclusive label put in the opening credits as well. Hammer and exclusive had... Well, they were basically the same company, but the exclusive handled a lot of the distribution side of things, whereas Hammer did a lot of the production. Well, at this point, Hammer is securing a lot of relationships with American distribution, so they don't necessarily need the exclusive branch anymore. Now, exclusive still stuck around, and it's still being used today. In fact, if you go to the new Hammer website, part of their opening graphic will show that Hammer Films an exclusive company. I believe a movie like Wakewood was released more under the exclusive line than Hammer. I don't know all the details now, but I do know they're both still being used. Either way, though, this is definitely a Hammer film because you've got two of the key ingredients of 1950s and 60s Hammer. You've got Terrence Fisher and you've got James Bernard doing some wonderful music in this film. Other than that, though, it does seem to be an odd film because this is after Hammer has established itself as the home of the gothic horror film. It's actually filmed on part of uh, Dracula sets, if I remember right. That's absolutely right. A lot of the, not the stuff in the outdoors, but I believe a lot of the, the town was set or shot on some of the old Dracula sets. The marketplace, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's not to say that Hammer was just doing horror movies at this time. They had just finished The Ugly Duckling as well, which is a weird comedic Jekyll and Hyde type story, which I've never seen, but the promotional material kind of scares me. So, uh, But it's supposed to be funny. But I think the most recent horror movie in their catalog before this one was The Mummy. Which they probably could have used sets from that as well. I, I don't know. Get that hot, dusty kind of feel. Uh, they did shoot, uh, speaking of shooting, they did shoot most of this in London in the UK. It was very warm where they shot a lot of it. The sand pits of, I forget the name of the city, but there were some huge sand pits that they shot a lot of the outdoor scenes in. It was difficult weather to shoot in. At one point, one of the camels had to drop out of the production due to sunstroke. So <laughs> uh, it, it was not a pleasant set for man or beast at times. Wasn't it an old quarry? Yeah. Part of it was filmed in as well, I mm-hmm. believe. And, you know, I mentioned the two Hammer mainstays with Terrence Fisher and James Bernard. You also had that dude. That dude. That dude, you know, <laughs> the Hammer dude. <laughs> Peter Cushing? Oh, that dude. George Pastel, who had also just been in The Mummy as well as the evil Egyptian priest. Now he's an evil thuggy priest playing the High Priest of Kali. Yeah, he was also in a James Bond film. Of course he was. <laughs> Minor role, he was a train conductor and from Russia with love. Anybody else you want to mention real quick? 
Actually, there is two other characters. Uh, one that I recognized right away. The other one, it took me a second to place. Um, so there's three. There's three total. Oh, wow. Is, but, that, is that the max we've had so far? Um, it's got to be. If not, it's got to be tied. Uh, the first one I wanted to mention is um, the one that I got right away, and that's uh, Lieutenant Silver, played by uh, Paul Stasino. assuming that's how that's pronounced. And uh, he was in uh, Thunderball uh, from 1965. He plays an Italian major. Someone gets made up to look just like him, and they take out the Italian major. Both roles are played by the same guy, of course, and then he takes over a NATO flight that has two uh, nuclear bombs on it, kills the entire crew, and steals the plane. I recognized him right away. The other one that I wanted to mention is Marine Maitland, uh, who played uh, Patel Sherry Shari in this film. Is it Marn or Marnie Maitland? Marnie Maitland. Marn. Mr. He, Maitland. Mr. Maitland. He's the one that uh, when I looked when I saw him first on the screen, I'm like, I know him, but I can't place him. And he was in 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun. Starring Christopher Lee. Uh, he <laughs> plays Lazar in that film. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying there's a James Bond movie that happens to have a guy that was in a Hammer film in it? Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but uh, he plays Lazar in The Man with the Golden Gun, and Lazar is the character who makes the golden bullets for Christopher Lee, The Man with the Golden Gun. He's only on the screen, uh, maybe a 10-minute scene, but he was like, I know him. I know why I can't place him, but... So I had to look him up. Well, Maitland definitely has a look. He definite character actor, I'm sure. I mean, the, the way he looks has a very well. He doesn't. He stands out. He doesn't just kind of blend into the background. I, I do like. The, I do like his look, and he has a very kind of cocksure, cocky kind of a presence in this film as well. So interesting looking dude. I'd like to know more about him. Actually, I'd like to see him in more things. Well, check out the man with the golden gun. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be remiss in some of my other areas of fandom if I didn't mention that there's a ton of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in this film, or maybe it should be the other way around since this film was first, but obviously the dealing with the thuggy cult and that sort of thing, you've got that potentially influencing Temple of Doom, which I think is a criminally underrated Indiana Jones film. Can I just say something about the thuggy cult real quick? I've seen Temple of Doom many times. And I'm going to, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to have to turn in any kind of nerd cards or whatever, but... Oh, no, you were busy watching football. It's too late for that. <laughs> no, no, that was Casey that was watching me. football. I went to the drive-in last night. I didn't, well, what <laughs> I didn't know the Thuggy cult was real. I thought it was made up for the Temple of Doom. Really? Yes. No, it's real. This movie said so. <laughs> yeah, it happened exactly like this movie said. This is well, a documentary. material said... No, I didn't know that there was other references to it. Ah. I just thought it was something that was uh, made up for Indiana Jones. So. so first of all, everything that happens in an Indiana Jones movie is real. Kalima. <laughs> you know, with a Come name to your like, heart, 
Cover your heart. <laughs> With a name like Indiana, you of course expect it to be real. Uh-huh. I was waiting for, we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> we named the dog Indiana. Uh, no, this this is definitely based on, well, supposedly based on history rather than another piece of fiction. In fact, this movie was originally going to be based on a novel called The Deceivers, which was a fictionalized account of the British's attempt to wipe out the cult of Kali. However, that didn't quite work out. I'm not sure if it was a money thing or whatever, but because that didn't work out and they still wanted to make the movie, instead they said went to the history and tried to create their own fictionalized version of what happened based on the history without actually referring to the book The Deceivers, which did eventually get adapted as a film starring James Bond, Pierce Brosnan. a few men murdered by bandits and turned it into the biggest fantastical conspiracy in history. I know nothing of these men. You're a liar. Oops, If I tell you anything, then she'll kill me. Who will kill you? What are you talking about, Hussein? We are tugs, sir. Tugs? Deceivers. What are you doing? You don't have to prove yourself. I have told you all the secrets of the deceivers. It is forbidden. Murder. Murder, I'm I will not hurt you. Then he's alive. He's alive. He's in great danger. You are hers, and she is yours. No, I'm yours. You are mine. You are mine. 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 You are an excellent deceiver. Perhaps the best deceiver of all. Have to check that out. Yeah, I, I've never seen it. Uh, it's supposed to be pretty decent, and, well, process is cool. Uh, but, yeah, the promotional material of this movie tries to pitch it as this is something that really happened. So, And the opening and closing titles, or not really titles, but there's a, like, a little bit of narration on the screen of the film, also try to make us believe that it was real. This is how it really happened. And wants us to understand that those who are followers of Kali are, who are part of the thuggy cult, are referred to as thugs. So much so that they underline the word thug at the very end more than once. And I'm not sure why that was. Mm-hmm. I've actually heard or read that it's pronounced tog, T-A-H-G is how it's supposed to be pronounced, but I mean thug. So we'll refer to it as this because it's the thuggy cult. Uh, the movie itself is part of the Icons of Adventure collection, which is a four-pack of movies on DVD, all from Hammer. Each one of the movies in this set is accompanied by an audio commentary. Unfortunately, there's not a lot to gain from the audio commentary of this film, so I don't have a lot of reference material pulled from that. The audio commentary is from the screenwriter, who is very impressed with the fact that his name appeared in the credits of the film. And doesn't really have much to say about the movie other than I haven't watched this in 40-plus years. Is the DVD still available? 
Yes. 20 bucks. Now, this is the only black and white movie of the entire collection, uh, which is an interesting choice, again, on behalf of Hammer back in the 50s and 60s, because at this point, they're making color films. You've got The Mummy. You've got Dracula. you got Frankenstein. These are color films. They decided to go black and white in this because they wanted to have more of a documentary feel because it is such a historical piece. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Hmm, because that explains some of my misgivings with the movie. Okay. The fact that they're going, wanting to go with more of a documentary feel. Okay. I mean, we can get into it now if you'd like. You know what? I was thinking, listeners, Casey may have to take off in the middle of this recording as well. So we are kind of doing things a little bit out of order. Casey, what, what do you have to say about what were you saying? I just found this movie hard to get through because it was very dry. And I thought a lot of the performances were very dry. Not necessarily bad, but they weren't very exciting to watch. And if there was nothing in this, we're usually in a hammer flick where a lot of it's, you know, some of the, we'll call them the normies, we might call Hammer films dry. They're very <laughs> atmo- there's a lot of atmosphere to get in there, to get into and whatnot that draws you in, and then you get sucked into the drama and stuff like that. And this movie, it never reached that point where I got sucked into the atmosphere or anything like that. And part of it, I just think because the way it was written, it was very dry, and I just it couldn't get into it. But seeing it, if they were trying to go for a documentary feel, with that in mind, I can see where that stuff why that stuff came across that way. Not that it makes me necessarily like it any more than what I did, but I can see what they, why it came across that way. Because it did come across very uh, educational-like, I guess, would be a good way to put it. And we don't like educational. No. Wow. <laughs> I, I did not get the feeling at all that this was a documentary style um, or educational I guess I missed completely out on that. I I kind of got into the story a little bit and um, enjoyed the film, so I didn't have that feeling at all. I did find it slow at at points, but the use of the black and white, I actually kind of enjoyed. I like some of the cinematography. Well, the cinematographer was Arthur Grant, who had also done The Abominable Snowman. He would go on to do some more for Hammer. Uh, He did Yesterday's Enemy right before this. He did do Hell is a City. So he's very comfortable with the black and white, but then he would also go on to do things like Phantom of the Opera, Night Creatures, and our favorite, The Old Dark House. So... (laughs) He also did The Plague of the Zombies. So, I mean, he's very comfortable doing color. I don't know. I don't necessarily buy that the black and white equals historical or documentary-like. It almost feels like they were just going with a black and white cinematography because that's what this guy was good at at the time. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, and to be fair, too, like when they would cut to the scenes that were based around the thuggy cult, the movie got better. I found it more interesting because it was more exotic and stuff. But when they cut back to the guys from this East India company walking around in their office, I just didn't find it very interesting. Plus that blonde-haired guy I found insufferable, which I know is the point. So, you know, he did do a good job with that, but it made it hard for me to enjoy the movie, too, just because he drove me nuts. You're talking Which about one? Captain Christopher Conant Smith? Yes. Yes. Alan Cuthbertson played him, and yeah, he was, he was I just a wanted jerk. To smack that. I just wanted to smack that giant hat off his head. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at Tracy at that point because there's already been a lot of headwear, and I said, man, I wonder what the hat budget was for this film. <laughs> yep. And it's obvious that the hat size grows with the size of your ego. (laughs) I think the official 1951 downplace Halloween costume this year should be British military from the Stranglers of Bombay, just to see who can come up with the biggest hat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
shall we get into the plot a little bit? Uh, Scott seems probably most fitted for that. He seemed to enjoy the movie. I haven't talked about my thoughts yet, but he seems to enjoy the movie the most. Plus, it's kind of his job. So, <laughs> my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an unpaid internship. Okay. <laughs> you mean you two are getting paid for this? <laughs> I'm going to edit that out. Damn it. <laughs> Derek. <laughs> well, the, the film starts off. We're in, uh, we're in Bombay, and we meet uh, Captain Harry Lewis, played by Peter... I oh. mean, uh, Guy... You're skipping over the whole opening, man. Oh. <laughs> with the whole pre-credit sequence, with the Kali stuff. And, so I'm, uh... I'm trying to get fired from my job. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'm, I'm going to mention this. This is actually a point that I wanted to make yeah, anyway. So That's fine. Terence Fisher has oftentimes referred to what he does as fairy tales for grown-ups. He kind of takes this kind of fairy tale kind of approach to his storytelling, especially when it comes to the gothic films. And he's in full-on gothic mode at this point. I feel like the opening sequence of The Stranglers of Bombay, which takes place before the opening credits, it's the high priest telling the story of Kali and why we strangle people instead of stabbing people. And the sacred cloth. and The sacred cloth and how we don't want to spill any blood because when Kali was fighting her enemies, whenever Kali spilled blood, the blood would hit the ground and turn into another one. And very, very cool. Granted, about three minutes later, he pulls out a knife and cuts somebody and spills blood, but it doesn't matter. It's an interesting opening sequence, and I feel like this is probably the most fairy tale like of the entire piece. Definitely in Terrence Fisher's repertoire at this point. It just happens to be a fairy tale for the villains of the story, <laughs> as opposed to a fairy tale you tell good-hearted children or whatever. When the green of the jungle was young, when our fathers and their fathers and their fathers before them were yet unborn, a monster walked this land. He ate the young, the strong, the old, the blood of our ancestors poured from the monster's mouth. It poured like the water in the great river. No one dared battle with him. No one but Kali. Kali! Kali! Without fear, as her children are without fear, she fought the monster upon this earth and cut him down. But from each drop of his blood, a new monster spawned. And Kali did battle with each new monster and cut them down. But from their blood, new monsters arose. To destroy them, Kali knew she must kill without spilling any blood. So, she gave our ancestors this sacred cloth and said, Kill! 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 strangled the monsters. There was no blood. You got that, and you also got a couple of scenes later on in the film that goes back to where the high priestess of Kali is training. There's a group of three new children of Kali, and that extends that fairy tale, showing their training, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are the three that are being initiated into the cult at this point, or into the group, the church, I don't know, whatever. They're the ones that get their blood drawn, and then they get branded, basically, or burned with a mark. Yeah, you, you'd mentioned there that uh, he, he does pull out the knife and cut somebody, but he's not cutting one of his enemies. And he said Kali, when Kali cut enemies, that their blood would drop into other enemies. He's cutting these children of Kali, so he's not expecting the, the blood to turn into another enemy. Later on in the film, I'll grant you that he does cut 
Captain Lewis's leg, who he considers an enemy. So it kind of falls apart there. Which was weird, but yeah, we'll get to that. And then the credits, and then we meet. Captain Harry Lewis, played by uh, Peter, I mean, um, Guy Ralph, who was doing his best <laughs> Peter Cushing imitation the entire film. <laughs> it was yeah. actually rumored at one point that Cushing and Lee were supposed to be in this movie. Well, of course they were. It <laughs> <laughs> made it, a more interesting film. Yeah, I, I kind of, I didn't like Guy all that much because I thought he was trying to do too much of Peter Cushing. And I don't know if that was a conscious move or if that's the way he was being directed. I don't know. To be fair, though, Scott, come on. Don't all of us try to just do a little Peter Cushing every once in a while? I'm trying to model my life after the man myself, <laughs> but I just can't get that British accent down. Mm. And I'm not going to try either. <laughs> <laughs> but he works for the uh, British East India Company, and uh, he's right now kind of got a, a pet project where he's trying to investigate why a couple thousand natives have gone missing. But uh, nobody else in the company seems to care that that's going on because it doesn't affect them. A couple thousand. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of like his pet project. He's been doing all this research on it and everything. Not now, Dasha. I'm late for me. Is there any word? No word. The boy is the only son of my sister. We're doing all we can. You must find him. We'll try. Burns Sahib says the company can find nothing. Burns Sahib Mr. says... Mr. Burns is the meeting now. If you let me go, Dashi, I can find out everything he says. An only son. One only sister. I know. But then the, the local merchants there, they start to rely more on the, the East India Company to investigate this because they're losing some of their caravans when they go out across the desert. And they need that to stop or they're not going to make any money, obviously. So finally, Captain Lewis's boss, Colonel Henderson, decides that um, maybe there is some merit to this and we ought to investigate it. Well, Captain Lewis then, after this, this meeting with the merchants, goes home to his wife. And before he gets there, we see his house and we meet uh, Ramdas, his manservant, I would assoume, playing with a... A mongoose. A mongoose. And <laughs> a piece of rope pretending to be a, a snake, which is an odd pet to have, but maybe in that part of the world it's not. Catch a big cobra. Uh, he's gone. Catch him. Come on. Catch him. Dad, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Captain Lewis gets home, and um, he's all excited because he's pretty sure that Colonel Henderson's going to pick him to lead this investigation into all these disappearances because he's now the expert on it because he's the only one that's been doing any investigation on it. Hello, Harry. Mary. Mary. What is it, Harry? Is anything wrong? Wrong. Things were never more right. They had a meeting today and they put their foot down. Who? Mr. Burns and the rest of the planters. They said these wholesale disappearances must cease. You used to chide me for collecting the statistics of the number of persons missing, remember? Of course I remember. Well, today I was called the expert on missing persons. That's what Colonel Henderson called me, the expert. I suggested to him that he appoints an officer to devote his whole time to investigating these disappearances. And he agreed. And darling, who's the obvious person to employ if not the expert? This is going to be absolutely wonderful, you know. Do you know what it means? It means that I can devote my whole time to this instead of just a few hours stolen after my regular work. And I will. There's nothing haphazard about this, Mary, you know. This is some kind of organized conspiracy. I know it, and I'll find it out. So he, he's seeing promotion in his, his near future. But Henderson sends a man to give him a message telling him to 
go out and meet Captain Connett Smith and um, bring him into town. And he's very deflated at that point because he figures that the messengers there is saying, here's your new job. And this is right she, after he and his wife were talking about how he's going to retire and he's going to go into the private pre- you know, business of some sort. And no, 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 I'm going to change my mind on that because it's, you know, I'm going to get this big job instead. But yeah. So he, he doesn't get it. So he rides off, uh, gets a couple men, rides off into the across the desert to go meet Captain Connett Smith. On the way there, there's a, a little small caravan that they see that gets attacked by a couple of uh, guys that bring out cloths and try to strangle the people that are in the caravan. Captain Lewis and his men break that up and capture the two perpetrators, which then causes them to be late uh, in picking up uh, Captain Conant Smith. And we get our first screen time with uh, Casey's favorite character of the film. I believe Colonel Henderson mentioned in his note something about Dawn. I'm sorry, Captain Smith, but we... Captain Connaught Smith, if you please, Captain. When you're quite cool enough, Captain, I'm ready. Yeah, I would have <laughs> left him out of town. <laughs> wow, you really did not like this guy. No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, that, As we said earlier, that's part of his character. You're not supposed yeah. to like him. He is. He did a good job at his role because you know he's <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly how he's written. So I mean, it was very effective. Yeah, he's he's a jerk. I mean, he berates Captain Lewis for not showing up on time. <laughs> so they um, head back to town. As soon as they get into town, there is a big commotion right by the front gates. There's a whole bunch of sheep that are loose that stop the whole little small caravan of people coming in. The two perpetrators of the crime earlier are being led. Uh, they're walking, but they're tied uh, up with ropes that are being they're being kind of drug along by the horses. During this commotion, they get cut free by the some of their cult members, and they take them away. Captain Lewis loses his two uh, prisoners, but he does have one of the uh, cloths that they were using to uh, attempt the strangulation. So they go up back into the offices where they meet back up with Colonel Henderson. And, of course, Captain Connett Smith is, again, berating Cap- uh, Captain Lewis because they were delayed by sheep. He makes that point perfectly clear and that the fact that they lose both their prisoners. Colonel Henderson then, you know, he's welcoming Connett Smith. Obviously, there's some history between these two characters. And uh, in front of... Captain Lewis, uh, Colonel Henderson gives Captain Conant Smith the job that Captain Lewis wanted to investigate all these disappearances. So not only is he being berated by uh, Conant Smith, Lewis now loses his job to him. And the being late to pick him up and all that, this is a recurring theme as well. This is something that's mentioned at the very beginning of the movie sure, he was, when we first meet him. Yeah, he was late to the uh, original meeting with the merchants as well. And I do like the comment that some of the merchants make to each other. You know, I invited him to dinner once. He showed up the next day. You know, it's so, you know, it's starting. It felt like it could have had some really interesting. Well, anyway, moving on with the plot. Yeah. they. <laughs> so Captain uh, Conant Smith is now in charge of the investigation, but he doesn't really give it too much of importance either. He 
Uh, we find out that he is a longtime friend of um, Colonel Henderson. Well, actually, Colonel Henderson is friends with um, Captain Conant Smith's father. So he's, you know, we got a little like nepotism going here, and that's why uh, Conant Smith gets this job, which infuriates Captain Lewis even more. Now, Lewis believes that these men and that are being killed in the caravan, there's a gang doing that, and that they are killing these people and burying them somewhere. You know, he's he's showing this scarf to Henderson. Of course, Henderson's not believing. He's like, oh, you you got a nice pretty handkerchief there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the sacred cloth of Kali. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the thuggy cult, you know, we see them get the, the, the two people that they rescued are brought back to face the high priestess of Kali. Actually, no, they don't meet him. They meet... Um, Patel Sherry. Isn't Patel there first? Because this is when they're getting punished. Punished. Thank you. I'm <laughs> my brain is not working this morning. This morning? This morning. <laughs> <laughs> so the two prisoners that the cult freed are sent up in front of uh Patel Sherry or Shari. Not the high priestess for some reason. I don't w- know why he gets to serve the penalties for them. And uh, he tells them that um, that they shouldn't go off on their own to try to, to rob people, to get money. All Everything should be done for Kali, and uh, that you should never look upon Kali again. You should never speak her name again. And then he immediately runs out of the room after that. After he signals the guy there next to the fire on what to do. And, you know, he, he goes running out of the room and Tracy's like, you know, what are they going to do? And I, I looked at her and said, well, they're never going to look upon Callie again or speak the name. I'm guessing they're getting their eyes poked out and their tongue ripped out, <laughs> which is what we find out actually happens to them. Which is probably the most, gru- well, that was pretty, it is pretty gruesome. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty, it sounds bad saying this, but I mean, that was a more interesting part of the movie for me. They shot it well because everything was done off screen. So all you hear is what's going on, which makes it seem pretty gruesome because it's all being played out by your your imagination. But then they confirm your imagination by giving you a quick shot of the aftermath, which I thought was pretty effective and was pretty nice. Yep. Yeah, because you follow Patel, who's visibly shaken by the whole thing. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to see it happening. And then he goes back in the room, and as, as Casey just said, we see the aftermath. And I, I thought that was well done because I, I expected that we weren't going to see anything. Pretty gruesome. For me, it's not the most gruesome thing that the cult does, but I don't know. When it comes up, I'll mention it. If it comes <laughs> up. And if it doesn't, I'll mention it anyway. <laughs> well, Podcasting uh, at its finest. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we then uh, we go back to Captain Lewis, and he's back home, and uh, Ram Dass, his manservant, comes up to him and says that he's seen his brother that he hasn't seen for years and years, his younger brother who had disappeared on a caravan a long time ago. And so he wants his leave of absence from serving uh, Captain Lewis and his wife to go and find his brother. Of course, Captain Lewis is like, you shouldn't go out there. You know, there's bad things going on out there. And how do you know, even know it was your brother? But the way that uh, Ram Dass is acting, you'd like, you know he's going to go no matter what Lewis says. So Lewis gives him the permission to go. 
Did he take his mongoose with him? Or did no, he? I no. thought he left the mongoose That's right. with the uh, He did leave the mongoose Lewis. with the family, but he goes off looking for his brother. And Poor mongoose. <laughs> of course, a couple days later, Ram Dass has not returned. Uh, so Captain Lewis is starting to, to worry about what happened to Ramdas out there? This part of the film, I kind of will agree with what Casey said earlier. It does kind of drag a little bit before we go out into the desert. I'm a little confused about what happens next. Is is the next when we go and we see the high priestess Kali again training the young kids? Well, I mean, we do spend some time with Captain Lewis. He's kind of investigating, trying to find his manservant, trying to find Ramdas, and there's that whole, "Well, he's one of you. Don't you know where he's at?" kind of thing. And, well, he's Hindu, and we're Muslim, and oh, no, yes. I don't know anything, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, there's a little bit of Snoopy Snoopy investigation, which maybe would have felt more at home in a Sherlock Holmes film. It just wasn't handled nearly as well. Well, this scene, this also gives a chance for him to be out in the marketplace, because then he gets attacked, and the sacred uh, cloth that he has is stolen. Now, he's attacked by a guy with a knife, and if I'm not mistaken, and I, I very well could be uh, <laughs> this early in the morning, the person who attacks him is played by Roger Delgado, who in the 70s appeared in Doctor Who as the master. You know, he has an excellent brain, that man. Though a little pedestrian. But oh dear, what a bore the fellow is. But is he dangerous? He's dangerous enough. But don't worry. I can handle him. But you said he was in there. You told me he was safe in there. Once he realizes that he's talking to himself, he'll be out here like a shot. Ah, he's realized it at last. That took a long time, the slow-witted fool. Now you watch. He cannot bear not to have the last word. Oh. That, that was for Casey, because I have Thank you. no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know that. I don't really know the old ones that well myself, so don't feel bad. So he he gets um, his sacred cloth stolen. We go back. Uh, we're back to Captain Conant Smith. He's interrogating a uh, man on the street, or actually, he's in the office, but he's interrogating this guy to see if he had seen anything going on. And he's like, "I've been here forty years. I've not seen anything." And he tells the guy to close his eyes and walk about the room. Yeah. That was so <laughs> odd. <laughs> so, of course, he, he, he at first he's going to leave, but then he does it, and he, he walks into different things. And I was just going to say, that didn't seem so much like an investigation, but more like um, some East India managers playing with the poor folk. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it's just like he was playing with him. After the second time he runs into something, he says, See, you've only been in here a little while, and you've seen... You, you will see things. So you saw something <laughs> after 40 years. What did you see? Like, that's some fine detective work, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> At this C point... Captain Conant Smith was not a very nice man. No. At this point, uh, Captain Lewis comes rushing into the office. All looks like he's just been roughed up, which he had been. First, Captain uh, Conant Smith berates him for interrupting the meeting and being dressed the way he is. He's like, I got, I got to talk to you right away. And so of course they clear the office and it's just the two of them. And he, Captain Lewis starts telling them that about him being robbed and that his uh, cloth has been stolen. Of course, Conant Smith doesn't care. He doesn't know what the cloth is. So 
They start arguing, and then Colonel Henderson comes in and breaks the whole thing up and sides with uh, Captain Conant Smith again. This is the point where Captain Lewis quits. He's had enough. He just he he quits the East Indian Company. I've had it up to here with you people. (laughs) Not that excitedly, but if I had a hat, it would even be this much. (laughs) (laughs) So he quits, and he decides that he's going to go off and try to find um, his manservant Ramdas on his own. So did you want to say something about this scene, Derek? Well, I wanted to talk about Ramdas. Uh, are we going to get back to Ramdas here anytime soon? I was going to, you know, this is the scene where we're back with the thuggy cult leader in, in Ramdas. Yeah, okay, so Ramdas again. We got the James Bond, we've got a gentle Doctor Who connection. I've got to mention Ramdas. I've got to be true to my Indiana Jones fandom here. Ramdas is played by a Norwegian actor whose name that I'm probably going to butcher, Tute Lemkow, who plays the man who translates the staff of Ra in Raiders of the Lost Ark. When they came out of the bathroom, they gave us a new spot in which to dig. Out away from the camp. The well of the souls, huh? Come, come, look, look here, look. Sit down. Come, sit down. What is it? This is a warning. Not to disturb the Ark of the Covenant. What about the height of the staff, though? Did Bella get it off of here? Yes, it is here. This was the old way. This means six kadam height. About 72 inches. Wait. And take back one kadam to honor the Hebrew god whose Ark this is. So, got a little connection there for me, so. I was uh, really surprised when I looked him up and saw that he was born in Norway. That, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't look Norwegian. <laughs> no. <laughs> so we go back to the high priestess of Kali, and uh, he's again training the, the three children of Kali, the, new, the newcomers. And it's time for their, basically their graduation. And their graduation is they actually have to kill someone. We've got Ramdas, and then we have the two gentlemen who've had their eyes gouged out and their tongues cut out are in a bamboo was like a bamboo type of uh, cage and the high priestess of Kali orders the three to to kill them as soon as they start to approach Ramdas recognizes one of the new members as his younger brother the boy I think recognizes Ramdas as well but he's kind of brainwashed by the the cult and he ends up killing and strangling Ramdas and the other two strangle the other two gentlemen and this is, for me, what the most gruesome part of the movie is. Not gouging out eyes or cutting out tongues or even strangling your brother. But then the high priest says, and slit their bellies so they do not swell. Yes. Yeah. And then the brother goes down and slits his brother's belly. You know, you don't see it. No. But, but to me, it's like, wow, that's just, you've been brainwashed into killing your brother, and now you just mutilated his corpse. Wow. Pretty hardcore. That was hardcore for me. We uh, then back in the town... All of the, the business people decided uh, at um, Patel Sherry's request that they're going to pool their resources and send out one caravan, figuring they're going to be a lot more safe if just one caravan goes across the desert instead of small ones that can be attacked easily. <laughs> our they must, our uh, powers uh, combined, we shall become... <laughs> <laughs> this must be long before the uh, the old the, before the adage of uh, don't put your egg, all your eggs in one, one basket, basket was you know created. <laughs> so we get we get this one big huge caravan, and um, Captain Christopher Conant Smith is 
kind of in charge of security for it. He and his men go out there. Now, oh, there is one scene that I forgot. There is, uh, at one point we find one of the Thuggy cult members is captured. And this is where we meet Lieutenant Silver. Now, Lieutenant Silver works for the British East India Company as well as uh, one of the, the British guards. He's not British. He's He's from that area because he's told to interrogate him because he's one of you. Right. Basically. I mean, we, we saw him at the beginning as well. He just becomes a, a an important character now. Yes. At this point. So. so he's left alone with the prisoner and uh, he takes off his jacket. He then rolls up his sleeve and shows that he's got the mark on his arm that uh, the high priestess of Cali had given him. So he's a member of the thuggy cult and he goes to the into this guy and just threatens to kill him and and he tells him that you've got to do exactly what I tell you to do because he's up for murder. Yeah. Yeah. So he says you got to you got to do exactly what I tell you to do. So the next day they they have this public hanging and everybody's in a jovial mood to the point where Captain Lewis notices that. This is a hanging robbers, isn't it? I beg your pardon, sir. Did you ever see such happy people as that one? Those two. You're afraid we all enjoyed a bit, sir. That's why we're here. What about the prisoners? Does he usually enjoy it a bit too? Look at it. Well, that is a bit rum, sir. In fact, you see, the the prisoner is happy, and he's he's praying to Kali, saying, "Mother Kali, I will be with you soon." And so they get ready to hang him, and, and just before they the men put him in the noose, he pushes either one of them away and jumps in the noose in one fluid motion and hangs himself. Which I thought was really kind of, I was like, that's <laughs> <Wow>. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd forgotten that when we first meet Silver, who obviously is one of the, the cult's inside men into the East India Company. So we go back, we've got this big, huge caravan coming out. Uh, the thuggy called us also really suspecting Captain Lewis because Captain Lewis had followed one of their cult members back to their sacred shrine and had started to witness part of the ceremonies. He gets captured. The um, high priestess ties him up on the ground in a spread eagle formation in front of Kali. Once this, he- is, this is right after this whole the death of this animal is evil and the death of that animal is a bad omen and yes. all this other stuff. Yeah, the death, yeah. of, death of a snake is a bad omen and all this. Once uh, Captain Lewis wakes up after being knocked out, they have, Kelly is now going to get her feast. And the high priestess cuts the leg open, you know, cuts a big long um, cut onto Lewis's leg, starts bleeding. At the same time, a cobra is released. And, you know, what I learned from this movie that, uh, like sharks, cobras are drawn to blood, which I didn't know that. That's another one of those things that's real. Just like the thuggy cult, Scott, that's another thing that's real. <laughs> so the cobra, you know, comes over this little hill and he starts slithering towards Captain Lewis. As he it gets closer and closer, Captain Lewis's horse that he had rode in earlier is tied up nearby. And Ram Dass's mongoose is in a bag. Of Release course, the mongoose! Release the mongoose! Of course... <laughs> So then we get uh, Ricky Tiki Tavi starts up. So we have the mongoose and the, the cobra start to fight, and the mongoose kills the cobra, which is the bad omen of the snake dying that was mentioned earlier, which you know, the high priestess takes that very seriously and immediately 
Kali is offended. We're doing something wrong. So they release Captain Lewis. Couple things. One, mongooses are the original honey badgers. This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. It's pretty badass. Look, it runs all over the place. Whoa, watch out, says that bird. Ew, it's got a snake. Oh, it's chasing a jackal. Oh my gosh. Oh, the honey badgers are just crazy. Two, there's another Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana Jones connection here in that the same sheet of glass that protected Harrison Ford from Cobra in the Well of Souls and in Raiders of the Lost Ark appears here and protects Lewis from the snake. It's not really the same sheet of glass. I'm just trying to point out it's the same method. That's how we get the Cobra that close to the real actor is that there's a sheet of glass here. And supposedly you can see it. I didn't see it on first watch. That's another thing we learned. Like, they're drawn to blood, but they are afraid of glass. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I also want to point one other thing out, too. And, and this is just because I think it's adorable. Scott keeps saying the high priestess of Kali. It's yes. a dude. It's the high priest. Okay. Just just for the yeah. record, and I think Scott's kind of doing it on purpose now because it's kind of funny. It is the high priest of Kali. It's George Pastel still playing a villain from The Mummy, uh, just a different nationality this time around. So it's it's a high priest. It's a dude. I'm getting just mixed up with, with Mother Kali. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I'm also jumping around in the plot a little bit. In the, in the order of things that are happening in the film. We could just all say that they were taking place at the same time. Because <laughs> I, I know I've mentioned I, this big caravan a couple times, and then I'm like, oh, I forgot this also. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I don't understand is that then they free Captain Lewis after the whole snake is killed thing, and they just let him go. Yeah. And, and I know they're not going to kill him because Carly would not be happy about that, but yeah, in prison, you know he's just going to go and bring people back and... Tell everybody what you're up to with your sacred claws and strangling and choking things. And, and you know they've all already established a track history of cutting tongues out and gouging eyes out. Once you do that to him, then he won't be able to tell him anything. Yeah, exactly. But that didn't didn't happen. He makes it back, and of course he's now the the cult is very suspicious of him. Obviously, then we do finally have the caravan taking off under the control of. Captain Connett Smith. Now, this was all kind of manipulated, was it? Didn't you get that impression that the cult was trying to put the big caravan together kind of behind the scenes so that when they do attack, they just have to attack one big group? Well, at one point, um, I think the high priest says, you know, once we get this done, you know, we can rest for a while. As Casey said earlier, all the eggs in one basket so they could scramble them. Well, when that scrambling happens, that's my favorite scene <laughs> of the whole movie. Yeah, they, they um, as they go out, we see that they get, keep picking up wayward um, souls that are traveling, you know, smaller, I'm guessing like fruit stand type people that have just what they've, their little wares and they want to be protected. And one of them turns out to be the three uh, new members of the cult that get... Um, it's Ram Dass's brother, right? It's Ram Dass's brother and the other two. They talk their way into the caravan. The caravan then stops for the night. And in the middle of the night, uh, you see kind of this pan shot of most everybody sleeping, but there is s several people that are wide awake. And, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. You see the guard. I'm guessing he's supposed to be guarding. He's kind of leaning on his gun asleep.
but uh, all of a sudden coming out of the, the jungle behind him, here's a whole bunch of the cult members, and the cult members that had infiltrated the caravan all hop up, and they start strangling everybody in their sleep. I love this scene. I love it. This is my favorite scene in the whole movie. It is a silent massacre. Yes. The stranglers come out of the woodwork, some from within, some from outside, and they just, like a wave, make their way through the camp and strangle everybody, quietly, silently, not spilling any blood. To me, this is my favorite scene of the whole movie. It's impressive. It's kind of scary. The way they just all come out and start choking folks, I love it. This scene was chilling to me. What I liked about it is I love that part, and then they just kind of all go back into the woodwork. Exactly. And Captain Conant Smith and his men wake up. They're not strangled. And they start trying to wake up people, and they realize they, you just you can watch Captain Conant Smith's face just realizing. You can just tell he's realizing at this point Captain Lewis was right. Yeah. As much as I didn't enjoy this movie as a whole, this was by far the best scene for me, too. I mean, cause it just for the exact same reasons Derek said, it was very chilling just to watch how effectively they moved through that camp and see that their whole plan came to light, you know, just perfectly. They played right into their laps, so it was mm-hmm. pretty. It was pretty chilling. Well, it was I also, really cool. I also like when the East Indian guys were kind of in a circle. The ones that have survived, they're they're all armed, and all of a sudden, the thuggy cult comes back in in all different directions. And so the the men are shooting in different directions, but then they just kind of circle in on them and, and kill them as well. The look of terror on Captain Conant Smith was really well done. I thought, great scene, great set piece. Best part of the movie for me. Yeah, it's the best part of the movie for me, too. How much farther do we want to go in the film, though? Well, let's end that on a high note, because if we get too much further, we're going to kind of get to the resolution, right? I mean, this is pretty much it's the last act before the finale. Yeah, because we've got uh, Captain Lewis trying to catch up with the caravan. He's with me, Lieutenant Silver, so you know something bad's going to happen there. How much farther do we, because this movie is only 80 minutes long, so we're we're right there at the end now. Yeah, I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up, I mean, to stop. Yeah. We don't want to, even though some of us are a little bit more lukewarm on the movie than others, we still don't want to spoil the heck out of everything. I mean, there are some interesting moments in this film, including what Casey and I just kind of, well, and all three of us just kind of gushed all over, so. And, and I think this, this film deserves to be seen. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Whether you guys liked it or not, that's fine. I mean, it's not going to be in my top five, but I really enjoyed this film. I thought it had some, some you know, the, the scene we just described was awesome. I also really enjoyed the, the scenes with uh, the high priest and, and some of the training scenes, especially the the pre-credit scene where they're all manipulating their their sacred scarves or whatever. I thought that was really cool. I liked Captain Lewis. I didn't like Conant Smith, but you're not supposed to. I thought he was well set up at, for what he was, uh, someone that you're that Lewis is supposed to dislike. I liked the story of Ramdas and his brother and didn't see what was coming. I figured that when the the brother saw Ramdas, he wouldn't kill him. But um, I was surprised the movie actually did that. Yeah. I, I thought that was a, a a daring move, and I liked it. They so, captured well his hesitation and whatnot too, though. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, there there is a struggle there. Is he or isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, there was a, that was uh, handled fairly well, really well. So overall, I 
I think it, it's a movie worth seeking out and seeing. And I'm thinking I'm going to be in the minority. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to kind of maybe serve as a bridge between Scott and Casey's opinion of the movie, I thought the movie was okay. I think there are some really interesting moments in the film. I think there are some interesting connections to other Hammer and non-Hammer productions throughout. While I knew that the thuggy religion was real, I didn't know it was as widespread. And I even hesitate to use the word widespread because that sounds that makes it sound like it was some sort of plague. And that's that's probably not very fair. I wasn't as aware of its impact as this movie and history obviously shows that it, it had, I, I would be interested in learning more about that. So for that, I'll be thankful for the movie. I think there are some interesting performances in here. I think Captain Lewis is serviceable as a hero. I don't know if he's fantastic. I think some of the smaller character actors around him or, or lower build actors around him are more interesting I find it interesting that a mongoose saves the day. <laughs> uh, and, and I did like, you know, our lead villain. I did like our high priest of Kali, George Pastel. I think he's a good, a good villain for Hammer. Like, we really liked him in The Mummy, and he's really good in this as well. I think the music is gorgeous. I'd buy the soundtrack to this in a minute and put this on my iPod. Oh, the music is awesome. Yeah, the music, the music fantastic. was fantastic. I think the cinematography is okay. I think going black and white is an interesting choice, and it did serve to highlight how sweaty everybody was. But yeah, it just doesn't do a lot for me in terms of like having to go back to rewatch it right away. After discussing it, I, I'm a little warmer to the movie, but I still had a hard time getting through it just because of the dry points in the East India in the business office side of it. Things I just you know we had problems with dry performances from like Guy Rolfe that I think we all kind of agreed with. Captain Christopher Conant Smith rubbed <laughs> me the wrong way as I've made I've made clear, but I mean that was just me while I realized he was doing what was asked of him, it was grading and made, you know, when I'm already dealing with parts of the movie being dry and not enjoying them, the, the fact that he's grading makes it harder to get through. But I did I did enjoy the thuggy side of things. When we got into the more exotic locations and stuff like that and what they were doing with their cult and their beliefs and their religion, I thought that stuff was interesting. Would you watch this before you watch She again? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. Probably before uh, 10 billion BC, too. 10 billion? <laughs> well, the movie, meh, didn't do great. There were plans for a follow-up that just not necessarily a sequel but another – exotic kind of historical piece that did not come to fruition. I forget the name of it actually right now, and I don't have it written down. I apologize for that. But there's a follow-up plan that didn't come to fruition. It just It's one of those movies that I think if it was released before or produced before the Frankenstein Draculas, it might have done better. But at this point, when you say Hammer, at least at that point in time when you say Hammer, you think Dracula, you think Frankenstein, that sort of thing. I think one of the things this movie suffers from as well is the lack of real female characters. You have Lewis's wife. I believe it's his wife. And then you also have Marie Devereaux from The Brides of Dracula wandering around the 
the cult site. And every time you see her, she's got a big old grin on her face, which just felt weird. She is somebody who feeds the prisoners at one point, brings food to them, and is very happy about it. I've read – now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've read that there is a, a UK edition of this or there was a previous edition of this in which she walks around topless all the time. That doesn't happen in this. Her part seems to be very <laughs> – at least in my version of it, that her part seems to be very cut down and cut back in that she's not even credited in the film. I must find this UK version. <laughs> 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 This movie was originally released with a, an all ratings. I don't know what the equivalent of a G rating was in 1959 U- UK, but it was released for all audiences originally, despite the gougings and the slitting of the stomachs and all these other things happening. And some folks seem to think that it was released that way. It was approved because it's history. This is how it really happened. So it's okay because we're just talking about history. We didn't make anything up. Now, when it got released on home formats later its rating was changed to a 15 but i do find it interesting that because it's history and it's historical it got away with showing a little bit more as far as the direction goes i think fisher is at the top of his game at this point in hammer time in the hammer timeline i mean he's fresh off of the the gothic films however he didn't really like how this movie turned out either and i've got a little bit of an interview where he said in 1964 the stranglers of bombay went wrong It was too crude. The basic idea was the absolutely true story of the thuggy. The producers felt it was better in black and white because it was a documentary story rather than a myth. But in the written word, there was too much Frankenstein and Dracula, and I was still with the previous approach. You know, Fisher's still kind of stuck in gothic land, and that doesn't seem to work for this kind of story. So maybe that's where some of my disconnect comes from as well. I'm still trying to find the UK version. I'm sure you are. (laughs) (laughs) In the end, it's an interesting movie, though. I mean, it's interesting to see Hammer trying to do non-period pieces. Well, it's even a period piece, non-Gothic pieces at this point. It's also not, I mean, there is elements that you would associate with a horror film, but I didn't get the feeling that it was a horror film. Well, and that's, we were just talking, our favorite part is definitely a horror moment. You know, with the waves of the stranglers coming out to choke everybody in their sleep. I mean, that's pretty horrific. So I'm going to assume that uh, neither of you are putting this on your updated uh, top five. Nothing's changing. <laughs> yeah, mine's going to stay the same. Yeah, I'm good. As much as I really enjoyed the film, it's not going to crack my top five either. But it's it's a solid Hammer film, and I will probably watch it again. I, I enjoyed it. And I'd like to thank uh, the people on Facebook that uh, recommended that we watch this uh, during our uh, voting uh, for our July episode. It it didn't get any votes, but there were several people that uh, recommended that we watch it. So that's why it made uh, our list. It's definitely outside the, the norm for Hammer when you think about it. Which, Hammer did so much more, which is something that we've all learned by producing this show, but you still can't help but shake the whole Hammer horror thing. All right, Casey, would you watch this or The Old Dark House again? Oh, God. Mmm, that's a tough one. I'd probably watch The Old Dark House again. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. I I don't know. I think I'd watch this before I watch The Old Dark House again. I don't know. The Old Dark House at least has more to laugh at. And not some British guy that I want to slap. (laughs) (laughs) 
does that about wrap up our talk on um, The Stranglers of Bombay? Yeah, like we said, we can find it on DVD pretty easily. Easy to get your hands on through that Icons of Adventure set. There are three Icons sets. Icons of Adventure, Icons of Horror, and Icons of Suspense. I don't know if the Icons of Horror set are really the iconic films. There's some good ones in there, but the Icons of Adventure and the Icons of Suspense sets are properly labeled. I mean, the films in those collections are wonderful. I think Cash on Demand, which we're going to be doing later this year, is part of the Icons of Suspense set. And they're good sets to have. I mean, there's not a lot of branding or cover art to kind of link them together as Hammer films. I'm not really sure where they, why they weren't billed as the Hammer icons of whatever, but all three sets are just Hammer collections. And uh, the Icons of Adventure set, every movie in that set has a commentary track. Like I said, the commentary track for Stranglers is not that great. It's pretty dry, pretty dull. But, I mean, if that's the kind of thing you go for, you know, commentary tracks on all your movies, that sort of things, I'd recommend the set. Because the other three movies on there are pirate films in color, Christopher Lee's and at least one of them. And I'm sure we'll get into those movies down the line at some point. (laughs) Well, one thing that I wanted to bring up now that we're done uh, leaving Bombay is I kind of wanted to revisit a little bit One Million Years B.C., I know that wasn't high on any of our lists, but since we recorded that episode, I had the chance to attend a Super 8 film festival at the Horror Hound Convention in Indianapolis. Now, Super 8 films are kind of digest versions of films, and the film festival that I went to was a Harryhausen one. So they showed most of Harryhausen's films, and um, they were distilled down to, depending on the length, either 8 or 17 minutes long. So basically, if you're going to take a Harryhausen movie and cut it down to its best parts, you're going to get most of Harryhausen's work. And that was the case with the version of One Million Years B.C. that I got to see. I actually nice. enjoyed it a lot better in this format. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the, the film started off right with the, the big fight scene between the Triceratops and the T-Rex. That's where the film nice. starts. Um, we then get some voiceover that talks about... Um, you know the, the cave people and how they're ruthless and they fight each other and we see a little bit of the fight scene fighting over the food and then when Turok gets kicked out of the, the cave people so we follow him a little bit get to see the, the brontosaurus we then he shows up to meet Raquel Welch's tribe um, we then go right into the scene where the mini T-Rex thing attacks the village there and we see that Turok takes the, the spear, kills the animal and then gives this, you know, gets the spear taken away from him and then goes to the uh, guy giving the spear back and then the credits run. That was the entire film. <laughs> so when you say there's some narration, was it narration different? Was it new? Oh yes. Was it-, it was added oh. specifically for this version uh, for those aren't again that aren't familiar with this format, it was before VHS. If you wanted to watch a movie in your own home, you you bought the Super 8 version. And since they were cut down, they a lot of dialogue scenes were cut and that kind of stuff. You're just showing the the big f- scenes from the film. So what film companies would do is add narration that would tell you a little bit about what's going on that may have in the film took 15, 20 minutes of dialogue or, you know, set pieces or cavemen running around or cavemen. Anything, just kind of grunting. Yes. <laughs> so you just had the narrator tell you a little bit 
you know, in a couple sentences what you need to know to set up a scene. And that happened quite a bit in a lot of these uh, Super 8 films that we got to see. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I would highly recommend uh, if you ever get a chance to see uh, a Super 8 film festival. It is a unique way to watch different films. Uh, unfortunately, this was the only Hammer film that was in the film festival. I went to the Harryhausen one on Friday night, and on Saturday night he had just kind of a general film festival where we got to see a lot of different films, uh, films like mm-hmm. It Conquered the World, Jaws, The Warriors, um, just... Uh, the Italian Stallion, and <laughs> were those all cut down too? Yeah, they were all cut down. Jaws was cut huh. down to eight minutes. Wow! I mean, the film starts. We get the 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 shark attack at the beginning. We immediately go into you know them hiring Quint, and then we're back out on the orca, and then the end. I mean, it was just about that quick. <laughs> wow! Just what you need to see. It, it, as Tracy called it, it was like watching Cliff Notes movies. But it's a very unique way of watching films. And I would jump at the chance to go to another uh, film festival like this. It was a lot of fun. If you listen to my other podcast, Monster Kid Radio, at this point, you will have heard Scott and Tracy, Scott's wife, Tracy, talking about the Super 8 Festival from Horror Hound Weekend. Uh, over on my show because it is an episode that's going to run while I'm recovering from my surgery. Uh, so I believe this is something you would have heard maybe about a week ago over there. We are interested in hearing an in-depth kind of recap of that festival. Head over there and check that out. And to further talk about 1 million years BC, we received a very cool piece of email from Evan. Evan contributed to the B-Movie cast when they did their Ray Harryhausen retrospective a while back after the man passed away, where he was taking every Harryhausen film that they covered and breaking down every special effect sequence, how long each segment is, how it was accomplished, was it dynamation, was it a match shot, what happens in these scenes, and that sort of thing. And he did that for us here at 1951 Down Place, breaking down 1 million years BC. It's fascinating. I'm looking at a spreadsheet here that breaks down how long the animation lasts in the film, how many seconds of animation there is, how long the film is, the percentage of animation versus film, uh, the final tally, according to his calculations, 10.5% of the film features animation. There's some notes on here. There's a, I mean, it's just a great breakdown. I mean, it's breaks down every sequence, the flying dinosaur scene, the dinosaur versus dinosaur scene, the allosaurus scene, the arch and the brontosaurus. We're going to post this over at our Facebook page where you can, I'm sorry, our Facebook, is that our page or a group where you can put documents? I, I don't know. I believe it's our group. Either way, find us on Facebook. Like us if you haven't already done so. <laughs> and join the group where you can have some conversation about Hammer Films. One of those sections will have a, a link to files. It is the group itself. So if you click on the files, we'll post that in there to where you can see the breakdown. And then we'll also post it on our website as well somewhere at 1951downplace.com if that's okay with you guys. That's fine with Sounds me. Good. Fascinating stuff. And big thanks, man, for putting that together. That's a great, see, a great analysis of the film that blows my mind that you're able to put this kind of thing together. I mean, he breaks down how long, like, this scene was five seconds long, this scene was ten seconds long, and breaks down exactly what happens in each sequence. It's amazing the amount of work that went into this. 
And to imagine that he did this week after week after week for all the Harryhausen films to be movie cast covered. Man. That is a Harryhausen fan. That's impressive. It's impressive as hell. So we'll make sure that gets put up into the website and the Facebook page. I'm going to try to do it before the end of the month so that it's already there when this episode comes out. But with my upcoming surgery and all, I might not have an opportunity to do so. So if it doesn't show up immediately, bear with us, folks. It'll happen soon. But that was the only piece of feedback that we received since last month, about 1 million years BC, directed at us. There were some comments made on Facebook talking about the the movie itself. And I mentioned how you can get involved in those Facebook conversations uh, by joining the group or liking the page or both. But if you want to send us direct feedback... You can do that by calling us at 765-203-1951 or emailing us at podcast at <laughs> about said podcast at disneyindiana.com. Hey, you know what? The other day I was recording for Monster Kid Radio and I said email us at mealorderzombie at gmail.com. Brenda comes running over here. Do you realize what you just said? Like, oh, God. <laughs> Well, if you do email us at podcast at DisneyIndiana.com, that still comes to me, so that would work. But email <laughs> us at podcast at 1951downplace.com. That would help my filter rules work a little better. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us, uh, our website is at www.1951downplace.com. Ah, there's something else I wanted to mention about the movie. We were talking about Guy Rolf, how much we really didn't like him or liked him, depending on who you are. I knew I knew him from somewhere. In the 90s, I saw him a lot because he was Toulon from the Puppet Master films from Full Moon. Ah, I like him better in those. Yeah. Granted, Corey Feldman would play a young Toulon later, and I don't see the resemblance, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Corey Feldman is a whole nother dark internet hole if you, you know, got time to kill and you want to see something sad. I fell into that internet hole a couple weekends ago. It's pretty crazy. Him and try, he's trying to uh, start his Corey's Angels when trying to set himself up to be like Hugh Hefner, which you know I'm sure is going well for him. Corey's Angels. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did watch that music video. Yeah, that was pretty bad too. The highlight of that music video was uh, Sean Astin in the background with that look on his face, like, "Oh my God, what have I, what have I done?" <laughs> Are you sure that's the look, or is the look I'm going to fire my agent? Yeah, that too. <laughs> what did I agree to? <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, Scott and I had the pleasure, as well as Tracy and Brenda, of, of staying next to him at a Horrorhound weekend a couple of years ago. We uh, were yeah. in the room right next to them, and it was, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was an experience. <laughs> he likes his fans. Ah. I will give him that. I will give him that. He He was ranting and raving about how these con organizers are not going to make his fans just zip through. He's going to spend as much time as he wants with each fan. I'll give him that. Even though it was clear there were other things happening in the room that may not have been legal, it's still... Oh, man. <laughs> oh, what an experience. I tried to block that myself. <laughs> Thank you for bringing those emotional scars back. <laughs> Well, I think the smell uh, kind of helps erase, erase some memory, right? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> <Can you have> a... <laughs> uh, 
So, well, you know, at least you had your uh, refreshments for free. <laughs> I don't know. It made me want more munchies, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thank you for listening to 1951 Down Place, everybody. <laughs> Next month on uh, Down Place for October, we'll have Taste of Fear. In uh, November, The Devil Rides Out. And in December, uh, Cash on Demand. Whoa, whoa. Did you hear that? When you said the devil rides out, did you hear that? Everybody just cheered again. <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to seeing that one. So am I. I'm actually looking forward to watching all three of them. Taste of Fear, a.k.a. Scream of Fear from 1961, written by Jimmy Sangster. I believe that is part of the Icons of Horror collection that I was mentioning earlier. That one should be fun. And Chris yeah. Lee's in it. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Can we safely say that Christopher Lee got more mentions than Peter Cushing in this episode? So we're not playing favorites? But I do have a favorite. <laughs> See you next month, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> Bye-bye. It's a reoccurring theme, but I think that's about the last time it happens. <laughs> that's where I was about to go with that. Yeah. So, <coughs> pardon me a second. <coughs> I just felt like that. <laughs> so, and here is the part where we clear our throats. <laughs>